he's gay. I mean, he's gay, excuse me, he's blind. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. It will not be pleasant listening. Welcome to the Lawrence Ross Show. You sound a little taller on radio. A two-hour weekly exploration into the mind of a man who calls it like he sees it, but he can't see his audience. So what if I'm blind? At least I don't have to look at your ugly face. Want to interact with this fool? You need a fucking Call or text the comment line. 813-602-2715. Hope you enjoy the program because no refunds will be issued. The Lawrence Ross Show. How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in tonight. If you want to get a hold of me, call or text. Love to hear from you tonight. In honor of his 73rd birthday. Do it, man. everybody for tuning in tonight always would love to hear from you if you're probably wondering why i'm only coming out of the left channel it's because i got some sort of thing with the uh the cables i guess i guess after about eight years or so of me using them i guess i, I guess after a while it just has just completely gone over to the left uh channel and i for whatever reason i'm unable to uh, get it back to the uh the the uh the stereo experience that I'm so used to, but hey, if I got to get new stuff, then I'll—I mean, I'll gladly get new stuff, not a problem. But it's just—it's just—it's—it seems to be a little bit more of a pain in the neck than it should be. I really don't know about that, but what I do know, uh, just uh, very happy to have you here with me tonight. If you're listening live or if you're listening on the uh, the podcast, uh, check out the Lawrence Ross Show on either iTunes or Spotify. So thank you to everybody who has been checking out the program. I got a nice comment in regards to the uh, Snowflake song that ran last week. Uh, Sonny told me that it was beautifully edited. So thank you very much for that uh, compliment. And I'll actually be running that at the end of the show tonight. That's tacked on to the out row for this week. So with that being said, getting into the personal recaps. Uh, so let's see. Friday night didn't really do all that much. Just basically just listened to the show and just hung out. And then Saturday, not all that much. And Sunday was laundry day, as is tradition with me. And it, uh, well, it was a uh, work week. Not much to really say other than we'd like to announce that 
Yesterday, I received my first coronavirus vaccine, so I'm so I'm not due for another one until April 22nd. You, you know, they they got they got to give you a little bit of time to let the uh, you know let the medicine go into your system, and uh, it was it was it was very painless actually for me anyway. I, I know there are some people who are very concerned about. It, some people are very freaked out, which is understandable. It's really not that painful. They just ask you, okay, which arm? And then they just stick you right there. I mean, I, I went to one of those uh, places that 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 let you do walk-ins, but not every place will let you do a walk-in. I mean, you may have to you may have to uh, call ahead or put your name on a list. But you know, if you get it, then get it. Uh, where I live in Kansas, we don't even have the Johnson and Johnson one. We got Madura. That's the kind that we got. We 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 got Madura, and. That's pretty much that. So you get you know you get you get two doses, uh, one every uh, every four weeks. But that's it. But it's only it's only two doses, and that's all you need. And the only thing because 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 uh, uh, we will because uh, uh, the th- common thing I've heard is that you will experience a little soreness, and there is a little soreness happening right about now. But it's not too terrible. My nose is running just very very slightly like it was like it was like it was like it was like 30 minutes ago I had a little bit of a drip happening but it eventually subsided and it has it hasn't come back yet but uh you know at least you know at, le- at least is one less thing for me to have to worry about at least is one less thing that I'm gonna have to uh you know at, at least it's something that I can you know have less fear about I guess you could say uh so and uh, oh wait hang on a sec oh hang on a sec uh and I would like to say that uh Stewie is with me tonight, but uh, he's he's on a cat, but he's on the couch with his wireless because, uh, because he can't come within six feet from me, so so that's how he's got to do it. He, he's he's got to be over there on the couch. He's uh, uh he's he's kicking back actually, and I I th- I, th- I, th- I think he's planning to say say something. I I think. Oh, you think you think I'm not right here, you bastard! Well, all right, cheap. Wow, we'll test you today. Real testy, man, because I saw your Instacart, man. Oh, boy. Yep, Pepsi. And uh, I say this every damn week. You're going to get a kidney stone. Yeah, I know, man. You say that every week. Well, uh, try water or something. Try water so you're not filtering your kidneys every 20 minutes. And it doesn't feel like you're going to pass a kidney stone every time you urinate. Well, I don't do that every time that I have to pee. I mean, it just, it just like, it, I haven't felt that experience just yet. No, you didn't feel it just yet. But when you feel it, you're not going to like it, man. And it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, look, man, do you want to just help yourself to a snack over there in the, uh, the pantry? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hang on a second. Can you give me one, too? Can you give me a bag of uh, Fritos? I got you a bag of Fritos, you busted. What was that? Oh, nothing, nothing. Yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. God, you know, deal with this guy sometimes. You know, it's it's like it's a blessing and a curse sometimes because he, he sometimes, you know, it's like it's good to have somebody here, but after a while he kind of drives me crazy. Oh, 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 that's, that's, that's real nice. Uh... You didn't hear this, folks, but he piped in my headphones and he just said, fuck you. So. <laughs> oh, and he shot me the bird, too. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Dick. All right. Uh, 
So let's see, what do I got? Well, I don't have any thing in regards to a sports that's anything like really current other than other than the Tampa Bay Lightning loss last night, bringing their victory streak, not only that they were on, but also their streak against the Dallas Stars to an end. Uh, but hey, I mean, season's almost over. And uh, I, I, I think it'd be great if we could lift the cup again, man. That would be just fantastic. Now, I'm a big proponent of uh, history, as uh, some of you probably know. I've, I've talked, about, I've, I've featured uh, some uh, stuff in regards to history. I got some stuff coming up tonight, and this, this is something that I really enjoy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm into uh, sporting events and uh, sporting history as, as, as much as I'm able to catalog, because admittedly. Some of it gets scrambled, and I can't really fit all the facts together in one thing. So I, it, it's it's a little tough to carp, it's a little tough to compartmentalize all that stuff sometimes, at least for me anyway. But nevertheless, here is here's a little here's a recap in regards to an event that happened 23 years ago today. It was Colorado versus Detroit. The game erupted into a brawl, but there's a storied history behind the brawl. And it involves uh, Claude Lemieux, a couple of their big hitters. So let's find out what this is about. This is from, oh, I think it's from, uh, St- oh, jeez. You, you know, you know, I, I, I forgot, I forgot, wait, wait, St- oh, dang it. You, you know, you know what, you know, you know, this is, this really sucks because I forgot the name of the damn source where I got this from. It's SB Nation, but it's not Super Bowl Nation. It's like, it's, it's 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 something something totally different. Anyway, here we anyway here we go. Here here's the here's the recap about what led up to and the aftermath of the miss big brawl that happened. So here we go. Up three games to two in the 1996 Western Conference Finals, the Avalanche had a one nothing lead with six minutes left in the first period. They entered the game with the simple goal of knocking the Red Wings out of the playoffs. But with this hit, Claude Lemieux altered the futures of both franchises for the next seven years. It's like the butterfly of, it's like the butterfly effect. Chris Draper crumbled to the ice. Lemieux left the rink with a game misconduct. Wow! So this guy, so this this dude just crumples to the ice. He like falls over, like a poorly constructed house of cards. And then this dude, and then this cat. And then this Claude Lemieux cat, he gets a game misconduct. I thought maybe he'd probably get, I don't know, maybe instigating or checking, but I guess not. And a powder keg got its powder duck with a game misconduct. And a powder keg got its spark. Uh-oh. While that one hit ignited... I like the music in this, by the way. I know I say this a lot, but I really like the music they use on some of these YouTube channels with, with you know, like, like, like the freaky techno music or... Some of the classical sounding stuff Weird History uses. It, it, it's, all, it's all really cool, man. I like it. I did the rivalry. The beef had actually been building since before the Avalanche. Oh, wait, hold on. I missed something here. For the next seven years. Chris Draper crumbled to the left. The conduct got it. There we go. While that one hit ignited the rivalry, the beef had actually been building since before the Avalanche were even the Avalanche. Ooh. All right. Lemieux had been a thorn in Detroit's side during the finals a year before when his Devils swept the underperforming Red Wings to win the Stanley Cup. Lemieux won the Conn Smythe Trophy, which led to a contract dispute, which led to him being traded to the newest team out west. How the heck did that happen? So so he gets the Cup, he gets the Conn Smythe, and then he gets into a contract dispute. 
I wonder if this was the case of him demanding more money. The Quebec Nordiques had just moved to Denver and became the Colorado Avalanche after being briefly named the Rocky Mountain Extreme. Huh. Wow, I didn't even know about that. I knew that Quebec had a hockey team, and I didn't even know that the Denver, the original name was Rocky Mountain Extreme. That'd be, that'd be something, you know. You know, I'm, I'm saying this, though. I think it would be a lot... I mean, I mean that, that name right there... Uh, uh, that name right there, Rocky Mountain Extreme... That packs a lot more punch than, say, Washington football team. What a wimpy name that is. That, 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 does, that does not invoke fear and intimidation in your opponent. It just seems, eh, generic. But Avalanche, that, that, that's a little bit of a better name, but it could kill you. Led by future Hall of Famers Joe Sockick and Peter Forsberg, they were cup favorites and began life in Denver with a 3-2 victory over who else but the Detroit Red Wings. It was a mostly respectful affair, as both teams celebrated the return of hockey to Colorado. <laughs> a mostly respectful affair. What What happened? What, did somebody get drunk during the game? Did a fan get drunk and puke all over the place? I don't know. Wasn't there that night. Detroit only lost 12 more times that season on the Wait, wait, only 12 more times. Way to winning the President's Cup trophy. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, if they've only lost 12 games, you know, during that entire season, that means they got 70 good ones already under their belt. So, yeah, definitely, definitely could go get the trophy. And they got it that year, if I remember right. Anyway, here we go. But one of those victories also directly led to the Avalanche's future success. During an 11-1 to victory at Montreal... The Wings scored nine times on Patrick Wall. He was finally pulled halfway through the second period, but having been kept in through that onslaught, the damage was done. Upset. Wow. <laughs> 11 to 1. Wow. That scoreboard looks a little lopsided there, guys. But I'm going to... You guys want to fix it? Continuing. And with no glass behind the bench, he went straight to Canadians president Ronald Corey to let him know he Hold was on. done playing for Montreal. Hold on. Following that... He went with no damage was done. The dead onslaught. The damage was done. Upset and with no glass behind the bench. He went straight glass and done. The damage was He was finally pulled halfway through score even to one victory at Montreal. The wings scored nine times on Patrick Waugh. Oh man. Patrick Waugh. Okay. Alright. So I just wanted to rewind that because I didn't catch the name the first time. So Patrick Waugh, he's so mad about the outcome of the game that he basically runs up to the coach. And says, I'm not playing for Montreal anymore, man. Screw this. He was finally pulled halfway through the second period, but having been kept in through that onslaught, the damage was done. Uh yeah, I mean, you know, when they, you know, when they pulled the goalie earlier in the game, I mean, they typically pulled the goalie at the end of the game. Like when it's down to the third period, last couple minutes, and, 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 and one team's doing great, the other team's doing crappy, they usually pull the crappy goalie. Usually, that's at least, at least the way I remember it. Upset and with no glass behind the bench, he went straight to Canadians president Ronald Corey to let him know he was done playing for Montreal. Following that opening night loss, the Red Wings beat the Avalanche three straight times, including a 7-0 romp on March 22nd, which led many to believe that Detroit had Wall's number. But as they say in hockey, the regular season doesn't mean <laughs> That they do. They met in the Western Conference Finals, fired up the grills, and had some beef. May 19th, 1996, with the series in Detroit, the Avalanche crashed the Kid Rock-themed party and stole the first two games in front of a shocked crowd. 
the ever-eloquent Denver Post columnist Woody Page gave the wings some bolts and board material when he said, the Red Wings will get about half their normal oxygen at mile-high altitude, but they're already having problems breathing because it's difficult when you have your own gloves around your throat. Detroit brought the... Sheesh! Hey, I don't want to play that back because it sounded like it didn't come through on the air. Stand by. Detroit brought the physicality having half their normal about the board materials of the Woody Page columnist Woody Page columnist proposed the Quint Denver Post columnist Woody Page gave the wings symbols and board material when he said the Red Wings will get about half their normal oxygen at mile high altitude but they're already having problems breathing because it's difficult when you have your own gloves around your throat oh man that's that's a diss if there ever was one I wonder I wonder what did the classify for I guess like Hey, Jim. Yeah. Would that qualify as a smack-off comment? Absolutely. Thanks, man. You're welcome. What are you drinking, Sapphire Red? Sapphire Red. Damn right, Skippy. Detroit brought the physicality to Game 3. In the first period, Slava Kozlov guided Adam Foote's face into the glass. <laughs> I like that. Guided his... Wow. That's interesting. Guided his face into the glass. Hmm, there's, there's, that, that, that's an, that, that's a new one. I've never heard that one before. I like it. Pretty unique. The officials had no issue with this, so the Avs took justice into their own hands. Claude Lemieux found Kozlov and said hello from behind. Each boy received a minor, and the Wings took the game six to four. <laughs> said hello from behind. That's crazy, man. Afterwards, as Claude and his family left the arena, Detroit's coach, Scotty Bowman, yelled at Lemieux from the Red Wings team bus. Claude stepped aboard, traded barbs, and walked away pissed off. The next morning wouldn't be better for Lemieux when it was announced the punch got him suspended for Game 4. This didn't sit well with Colorado, who believed Bowman sent tape to the league office asking for Lemieux to be suspended. Bowman denied it, the team split Games 4 and 5, then returned to Denver for Game 6 and the hit. Draper suffered broken bones to his jaw, nose, cheekbone, right eye socket, and had five teeth bent backwards. Oh my jeez, man. Now that kind of seems like he's making his face look like a ransom note. <laughs> that, that's that's a description I heard them describe one time. I remember I was listening to the radio one time, and this guy, he was talking to uh, one of the uh, one of the hockey players, and he said something, he said, like, it seems like your mission is to make the guy's face look like a ransom note. <laughs> and anyway, continuing... Other than Steve Eiserman, none of the Detroit players saw the damage until after the game. Uh, Steve Eiserman, he's been a huge name in uh, Florida, man. He, uh, he he was he was part he's been a part of Tampa Lightning for years and years and years. I think he retired though. I can't remember. But anyway, a 4-1 Avalanche victory that knocked the Red Wings out of the playoffs. Once they did, many regretted showing Lemieux any sort of respect after the game. I can't believe I shook this guy's friggin' hand after the game. That pisses me right off. As for Lemieux, he was suspended and fined for the hit, but it wasn't enough for Detroit. Draper was left wondering if he'd have to take things into his own hands. It didn't help that the Avs went on to sweep the Florida Panthers in the finals, and it really didn't help that Lemieux never apologized. The Wings vowed revenge, spent the summer stewing over the hit, and made moves to make sure they could play the bully. Wow. <laughs> we will have our vengeance, basically is what they were saying, and well, let's find out what happened here. In the second game of the 96-97 season, Lemieux tore a muscle that sidelined him for the first two Detroit matchups. They could have used him for the second time around. Martin LaPointe sent Avs defenseman Alexei Gou- Hold on, seconds in the real quick, folks. 
21 minutes past the top of the hour on the Lawrence Ross Show. Thanks for tuning in. Surav flying into the glass, briefly knocking him unconscious. This plus a head injury. Wait, 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 wait. Briefly? Briefly? Knocking him unconscious after he goes flying into the glass? I gotta hear that again. 96-97 season, Lemieux tore a muscle that sidelined him for the first two Detroit matchups. They could have used him for the second time around. Martin Lapointe sent Avs defenseman Alexei Gusarov flying into the glass, briefly knocking him unconscious. This, plus a head injury to Rennie Corbet, led Avs GM Pierre Lacroix to confront Lapointe after the game where he was heard screaming, you're never going to win a f***ing game again. <laughs> Which, as far as insults go... It's just it's just a bold statement. <laughs> oh jeez. Man. <laughs> I like this guy's delivery too. This 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 guy's this, this guy's got some pretty good delivery. It's pretty good. Continuing. When Lemieux finally returned against Detroit, he and Draper shared some words but kept their gloves on. The Avalanche skated away with the victory, while the Red Wings had to wait 10 days for the final regular season rematch. With police protection as the result of death threats sent his way, on March 26, 1997, Lemieux returned to Detroit for the first time since Game 6. Near the end of the first period, the brawl began. Everything looked par for course until McCarty spotted Lemieux standing alone. He came up along Claude's side and caught Lemieux with a right. From there, everything erupted in a way that looked rehearsed by Detroit. Uh-oh, it's the domino effect, ladies and gentlemen, look out! It became a scene with everyone playing their part, but afterwards, McCarty said no one talked about it before the game. It just happened. Including McCarty kneeing Lemieux in the head. As the refs focused on getting McCarty off of Lemieux, the goalies went at it in an exhaustingly impressive display of balance. The officials finally freed Lemieux, who made his way to the locker room as the crowd erupted. They are on their feet here at Joe Louis Arena. <laughs> I find it, you know, it, it, it's something to know that a, a hockey arena named after a famous fighter had a fight in it. <laughs> as, if, as if that's really much of a surprise these days, but anyway. As for McCarty, he received a double minor for roughing. Wait, 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 hang on. Double minor for roughing? Hang on a second. So he just comes up to Claude, you know, Claude, Claude Lemieux, belts him, and that's minor roughing. I don't know. I mean, maybe it probably is. At least he didn't draw blood, because I've heard if you draw blood, that's an automatic, automatic five-minute major. Five, but five minutes for fighting. No fighting major, no game misconduct. Just kept on trucking. <laughs> it took 10 minutes for the refs to restore order, but this game was already out of their control. Yeah, when you have, when you got the goalies going at it, man, after after some of the other players have gotten into it, the, ga the game is pretty much over at this point. You might as well, you might as well just kick back in your, uh, you know, in your in, in your in, in your zebra-looking shirts and just enjoy the night. Just watch those two teams just go at it for the next couple of hours. You know, officiate when necessary. Deadmarsh and Konstantinov dropped gloves. Shanahan and Foot went at it to start the second. Followed a few minutes later by Keane and Holmstrom, Ward and Severn, and four minutes later, Deadmarsh looked to get some revenge on McCarty. I wonder. I wonder if. I wonder if. Okay, I, I wonder if it would be easier to have a list of all the people who didn't have a fight that night. Deadmarsh trying to get back for McCarty didn't deliver. Once everyone remembered there was a game going on, regulation ended with the teams tied at five. Somehow, Darren McCarty was still in the game, so naturally, he scored the game winner in overtime. 
this point, the guy doing the narration didn't set all the enthusiasm. He's like, and at that point, he scored the game-winning goal in overtime. After the game, Scotty Bowman said none of this needed to happen. It could all have been put away, you know, if he would have said he's sorry. Less than two months later, Colorado and Detroit had a Western Conference Finals rematch. In a tough back-and-forth series, the rivalry took over in Game 4. During a 6-0 Red Wings victory, the third period had 204 minutes of penalties. 204 minutes of penalties? Wow! The average hockey game is only 60 minutes, so I wonder how they're able to squeeze all those penalties in in just, in just that time. Wow. It must have been really rowdy that night. 64 of which came in one altercation with just over two to play. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second. Hang on. How exactly can you get 64 penalty minutes in one altercation? Over two to play. Over two to play. 204 minutes of penalties. 64 of which came in one altercation with just over two to play. Okay, so two minutes left in the period. You got, you rack up 64 minutes of penalties. How exactly do you do that in such a short amount of time? There's only so many guys on the ice. Like, what exactly do you do? Like, like, like how, like, like what, exa- like what exactly do you do with the, like, what do you do with the penalty box? What do you, what do you do with the penalty box? What exactly do you do? Do you just, uh, I don't know. What do you make it wider? What do you, what do you get another penalty box and put it next to the other guy's penalty box? Or what do you have like a makeshift jail set up where all the players can congregate in, you know, in one, in one, uh, in one penalty area? What? How exactly does that work? Is that like, hey, what are you in here for? Instigating? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Oh, and you're also here for uh, checking the guy on the board? Yeah, I saw that too. And I'm here because of uh, goalie interference. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, 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 I don't think they have that system in hockey. Besides, besides, they all know why they're in there. You know, they don't know exactly why they're in there. The PA announcer only only tells the audience, you know, number 26, Jerry Rogers, four minutes for instigation. Time left in the play, time left in the period, 1327. Watching his team get beat in every way, Avs coach Mark Crawford had had enough and let Scotty Bowman hear it. Standing over the small partition between the two benches, he lay into the legend. Unfortunately, the broadcast didn't pick it up, but Adrian Dater was able to transcribe the tirade in his book, Blood Feud. It- hmm. Adrian Dater, what called Blood Feud? Actually, I don't want to read that, actually, because I'm... Actually, I don't want to read that. Yeah, because you're really into hockey. Yeah, thanks, Stewie. You didn't need to yell so damn loud. Blood feud. It pretty much just amounts to Mark Crawford yelling at Bowman, calling him old over and over again, and then telling somebody that he's going to fucking kill them. <laughs> Man, that's that, that that's strange. That's that's strange. If I ever heard of a hockey threat like that, never heard the kill you part. You know, the usual. Crawford was fined, the Wings won the series in six, and then swept the Flyers in the finals. With the rivalry tied at one Stanley Cup apiece, Colorado came into the 97-98 season looking to get back on top. Lemieux knew he needed to squash his beef with McCarty before it led to more of the same. In their first rematch of the season, the pair dropped gloves right after the opening face-off. 
While McCarty applauded Lemieux's attempt to end things on the ice, it wouldn't be enough. McCarty said after the game, I respect Claude for doing that as a hockey player, but I still have no respect for him as a human being. He still hasn't apologized to Drapes for what he did. He added that he'd be fine if the blood feud never ended. On April 1st, the teams picked it right back up in a game that once again had 200 plus penalty minutes in the third period alone. <laughs> 200 plus penalty minutes in the third period. So would that pretty much mean they'd have to stop every 12 seconds to give some guy a penalty? Like goal interference or icing or, you know, or, you know, whatever. I don't know. That's where we got this beauty. Looking to gain control of the rivalry ahead of the playoffs, Wall fought his second Detroit goaltender in as many years. And despite losing the game, he skated away celebrating. But in an interview with Osgood following retirement, he revealed that this fight was a different sort of turning point. After our fight, this is where I realized it was overboard. This is not what we were there to do. We'd simply lost our focus, to be honest with you. For the first time in three years, the teams didn't meet in the playoffs. Colorado was bounced in the opening round, and Detroit's road to back-to-back -back cups was made just a bit easier, ending with a sweep of the Washington Capitals. The rivalry was far from over, but over the next four years, the focus was on winning games instead of winning fights. In 2000, they even played the first regular season game in 20 years that didn't have a single penalty. The oh, wow! Isn't that something? <laughs> They finally played a game with no penalties. Wow. That is amazing. Maybe they can get along. Maybe. I don't know. Avalanche knocked the Red Wings out of the playoffs in 99 and 2000, then won their second Stanley Cup in 2001. The Red Wings bounced the Avalanche a year later in a seven-game Western Conference Finals before winning the Cup back. Those last years gave us Iserman's Statue of Liberty goal on wall, Ray Bort getting his first cup in his final season, even a brawl that almost led to a third goalie fight had Hashik not tripped trying to get to wall. The hatred turned into a shared respect between the teams, fan bases, and media. It helped that the Avs shipped Claude Lemieux back to the Devils in 1999, since he still never apologized for the Draper hit. They met and talked for the first time before the 2016 Avalanche Red Wings alumni game, and the past was left alone. Even the pair that combined to spark it all had moved on to just appreciate it for what it was. Two teams made up of some of the most talented hockey players in the world, pushing each other to be better. The beef was special and the hatred was real, making it one of the most unforgettable hockey rivalries of all time. Thanks for watching Beef History. Oh, Beef History. That, that's, that, that's the... That's the uh little uh that's the show that they do but i can't remember the name of the damn channel it's gonna drive me freaking crazy gonna drive me freaking bananas man all right okay oh wait a second where's this thing okay well it's uh 32 minutes past the top of the hour on the program i think i get into uh this uh, let's see. What is this here? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. This. 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 This could be something. Uh, the United States Postal Service. This. This is. It's from Monday, by the way. So. Oh no! Wait. Hang on. A minute. What? What is this? More than half the students. Oh! 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 Wait! Oh! Wait! Oh! Wait! Hang on a second. This is. This is. This is something pretty interesting that I could get into. Uh, although I might have covered it last week. I don't know because sometimes these shows kind of run together, but. At any rate, this this is a, a story about a uh, uh, an online threat, and uh, I I I 
Well, let's find out what this is about. More than half the students at a middle school did not show up for class today in Highlands County, and the cause was a social media threat another student made about shooting up the school. Fox 13's Brianna Arredondo explains what investigators learned so far. Yeah, and that stuff is traceable, so it's not like he can get away or she can get away with being anonymous and trying to make all these threats. Because, you know, now it seems as if Seems seems ever since that's it seems ever since seems ever since I don't like Mondays came out we've had to really we as a society have had to really batten down the hatches in regards to school shootings we've really because 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 that was that was basically one of the first documented school shootings and the perpetrator when they asked the perpetrator why'd you do it her response was I don't like Mondays and that was made into that song by the Boomtown Rats we've heard that song I think. If, if, if you haven't, check it out. It's really good. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot the whole day down. So the mean without you. Ah, shut up. If you want to live tomorrow, I don't recommend coming to school. Those words made it into an Instagram story post Monday night that threatened to shoot up Lake Placid Middle School Tuesday morning. Wow, yeah, that 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 can be construed as a threat. You know, you know they 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 really you know they 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 really got the resources. You know they 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 should you know. Hopefully they got all the resource officers ready to go. Tuesday morning. It didn't take long before we were informed about it multiple times. Highlands County deputies say they tracked down the social media post to a 7th grade student of that school. The 13-year-old girl was arrested and charged for making the threat. The post showed photos. Wonder if she's going to get charged as an adult for that. Well, she's only 13, so it's it's not it's not like it's well, admittedly I don't know all the laws in Florida, but I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure that making a threat of that caliber would probably have to carry some sort of. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a felony charge. I think. I mean, we'd hope so. Photos of firearms, along with the message of killing whoever they see. Turns out that both of those photos were found on Google, so they weren't. They weren't even real photos that were taken by the person that posted. They were. Just- wow, man! What 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 is up with kids these days? I mean, yeah, they think they they the the. I, I, I guess they think they can try and outsmart people, but it's just, I don't know, it's, it's not, not, not working. Not working, guys. Not working. All right, continuing. Just photos they had found online. Sheriff's Office spokesperson Scott Dressel tells us the social media post caused more than half the school students to miss class Tuesday. The school normally has 650 plus students. Um, 445 of them were absent today from school. For parents just keeping their children home. All right, so if the guys said, wait a minute, hang on. I want to I want to reevaluate I want to evaluate something here on this standby. Person Scott Dressel tells us the social media post caused more than half the school students to miss class Tuesday. Okay, more than half. So that's over 50%. Then they give you this. The school normally has 650 plus students. Okay, 650 plus. He's being very vague in regards to that. Like he's not saying 650, 670. Why does he say like approximately 700 or something with a little bit more of an easier round number that we can work with in regards to this trying to figure this out um 445 of them are absent today okay so 445 students and if you have as they say 650 plus then yes that's over half but what they're not saying is like what is like you know why didn't you know why didn't they say something to the effect of this percentage of student 
students were out today. These students were there. That sort of thing. I don't know why they didn't do that, but anyway. From school, from parents just keeping their children home out of abundance of caution. You can't really blame them. The sheriff's office put extra deputies here for the students who did come to school. And they also had deputies driving around the other schools in the county to stay alert. The Instagram story also mentioned two friends along with bullying. So detectives want to see if the student was bullied and whether others were involved in the threat. This is not the way to handle that. You know, there, there's steps you can take. You can tell your teachers, your parents, um, but threatening to shoot up the school is not the way you handle being bullied. <laughs> no, not at all, man. That, that's that's like that's 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 not that's not even an option, really. But some people are just blood hungry, man. That's what they are. All right, two more things, and then I gotta go. Then I want to. Uh, wait a minute. Okay, wait. Two more things. And then, uh, let's see, yeah, let's see, two more things, then I'm probably going to play an old bit, then go into a, uh, uh, then go into the, inter- go into the interlude. But, uh, see, this, this is about the United States Postal Service, this should be it. We're also tracking a major break in the capital. Oh, oh, no, no, wait, you know what, this is something you didn't get to last week, this is, this is in regards to, uh, well, Two of the people who have been in, uh, two of the people involved in the Capitol riots are now in trouble. We are also tracking a major break in the Capitol riot investigation. Two suspects are now charged with assaulting police officer Brian Sicknick. Disab- Ooh, I think that's a felony to assault a cop. I think. Sicknick disabling him with bear spray. Sicknick later died. CBS's Jeff Pegues reports tonight on. Ooh, these guys. These guys are fucked with a capital F the evidence that led investigators to the suspects. Investigators say the two men charged, George Danios and Julian Cater, are seen here in this video at the very start of the Capitol riot. According to newly released court documents, Cater can be heard coordinating to assault law enforcement officers, including Officer Brian Sicknick with bear spray. Say Cater, seen here with it. You know, listening to this, it kind of kind of sounds like the reporter is on the verge of tears. Kind of, that, that at least that's what I'm hearing when he when he's when he's trying to talk about the cop who was killed. I think it almost sounds like he's going to cry. Seen here with his standby. Ray can be heard coordinating. Investigators say the two men charged, George Tanyos and Julian Cater, are seen here in this video at the very start of the Capitol riot. They look guilty. That's just my opinion. Ageless assholes, I think that's what he said. According to newly released court documents, Cater can be heard coordinating to assault law enforcement officers, including Officer Brian Sicknick with bear spray. (laughs) (laughs) Investigators say Cater, seen here with his arm raised, was spraying a canister at Sicknick and two others, leaving them bent over, blinded, and incapacitated for 20 minutes. Officer Sicknick later collapsed and died the following day. The 42-year-old Iraq War veteran was hailed as a hero and given the rare distinction of lying in honor at the Capitol. Each day when members enter the Capitol, this temple of democracy, we will remember his sacrifice. Daniels owned a sandwich shop in West Virginia. Investigators matched this logo on his sweatshirt to the T-shirt in this online image. It was a tip from a former co-worker in Pennsylvania that led agents to Cater. 
A witness says the two men knew each other and grew up together in New Jersey. As evidence comes in and as people cooperate, uh, it, it, there will be more arrests and there will be more serious charges coming out of this, no doubt. It, oh, well, I would hope so. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this is only a case of citizens storming the Capitol and trying to brutally attack uh, the elected officials. I mean, I know it's one thing to not like the elected officials, but I don't know. I think they, it was just, ah, not good. Not good any way that you look at it. Okay, uh, let's see. Going, let's see. Swinging it back over to Tampa, Florida, one of my old stomping grounds. Uh, the police officers are now going to implement some brand new training techniques. St. Pete College is on the leading edge of training our next generation of police officers. Yeah, their law enforcement academy has just unveiled a new virtual tool. And as I got to see firsthand, it's training cadets to make quicker and better life-saving decisions. For anyone wearing a badge... More realistic training means more life-saving decisions. Hands up. Hands straight in the air. And these cadets are among the first in the state to experience it. It's called Virtra, a 320-degree virtual training stage. Now I need you to step away from the weapon. Emma Tabak. Please stand up was just hired by Clearwater PD. It's definitely uh, intense. There's a lot that you have to learn that you wouldn't otherwise know. Jonathan Reese is now one of St. PPD's finest. If we're not engaged with what's going on around us, we get tunnel vision. That, that could be a really um, tragic day. Jonathan, you have secure? And there's Kevon Maybon. It's not the easiest time, I'd imagine, to get into law enforcement. You no, know? sir. He grew up around law enforcement, but was most inspired to join the force by current events. There's a lot of people that are talking about police should do this, police should do that. I figured instead of talking about it, I should go out and try to be that change. So that inspired me to come to the academy and try to change. Yeah, instead of talking about it, doing it. You got to admire this guy's passion. You know, he's, he's, he's doing it. He's putting his best foot forward, man. Some things going forward. Turn around, put the gun on the ground. Gun. But this goes far beyond teaching when to shoot and when not to shoot. There are 250 different scenarios here, each with varying outcomes, depending on how the recruit reacts. So the system we're looking at here encourages that dialogue uh, with the citizen on the street, looking for de-escalation processes so they don't have to resort to use of force issues. A secondary officer to back up on a domestic. The operator sitting nearby can choose to have the suspect comply or resist depending on the officer's tone. And that obviously helps the realism, right? Absolutely. Uh, just like out in the real, real world, we don't know how individuals are going to react. We don't know what individuals are going to say. And without having seen those scenarios play out yet, it was my turn to give it a try. Sir, you need to put the knife down. Sir, you need to put the knife down. He doesn't. He charges and likely slashes me because I hesitated. There's a lot going on, and I think it took you a little less than a second to make all those decisions. But then it was too late. And then it was too late. So I guess what the guy's saying is, look, there's no room for hesitation, man. There is no room to stop and think. You have to, you have, you have to be quick, you know, on on, on whatever you got to be quick on. You you you, you got you got to be like right there, like at the moment, because if you know, because a second later, second and a half later, maybe even a millisecond later, it could be it, it could be over. I try again. I get a shot off this time, but miss. It even shows me, look where I missed. See that blue dot behind him. <laughs> Yeah, behind him is the key. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, I wanted to give me one of those things. Maybe I, maybe I could probably get a better shot. 
I don't know. Maybe. That's how far he advanced that quick when you got the shot. So third time's the charm, right? This time I'm backing up an officer who's holding someone down in a fight. Only another man has a knife. Sir, put the knife down. I hesitate. He charges my partner. I shoot and miss again. So by the time oh. I decided to shoot, my bullet was here, and he's already up here, and probably already on top. Okay, okay, okay. So something, something tells me this reporter would not make for a good cop. He hesitates too long. He waits too damn long, and then his partner's on the ground. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, first time's always tough, right? Yeah. At least it's only a training exercise. At least this isn't, you know, at least this isn't the real thing. For the officer. Right. Both times, all I could think about, though, was not getting in trouble and what would happen to me if I made the wrong choice. And that's what causes, in your case, it's what caused you to get hurt yeah. in that situation. And lose my partner, right? And lose your partner in the one, yes, sir. The new reality for police facing situations like these on the street where they don't have a reset button. No, they don't have a reset button, and it's, you know, it's, it's good training. It's good training, but the, but this particular reporter, he and <laughs> uh, he, he he couldn't cut the mustard. <laughs> All right, now on to this about the United States Postal Service, where it seems as if they have two speeds at the. P Hold on a minute, folks. I just want to get something real quick. I just want to get something. I want to attach something to it. Uh, where's that thing? Do 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 do. Where's that? That. And let's see. All right, wait for that to load. Okay, hold on. Stand by. There we go. Get that in a second. All right. Want to get into this? This is about the United States Postal Service, ladies and gentlemen. Where it seems as if at the post office they have two speeds: slow and stop. <laughs> anyway. Here's, here's some changes about them, possibly. The Postmaster General announced today a cost-cutting plan that he says will save it. CBS's Chris Van Cleve joins us from a post office in Virginia. Good evening, Chris. Margaret, this 10-year plan aims to take a potential $160 billion shortfall and turn it into profitability, but it could mean frustration for many Americans because the plan suggests slowing the delivery window for first-class mail from two to three days down to three to five days. So oh, wait, wait, wait a second. So that, that's, that's, that's not really going to work out because what, what if somebody really needs their package? You know, what if it absolutely positively has to be there overnight? Oh, no, wait, that's Federal Express. That's Federal Express who uh, does that one. You get your slogans right, man, Mr. Radio Guy. Uh, dude, shut up and just eat your damn Pringles, all right? Some post offices would see their operating hours cut, and postage prices are likely to rise. Without wait, 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 postage prices are likely to rise. That happens almost every year with the with 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 the stamps. The stamps are always like you know the stamps. It's like it's it's like it's like yeah. Can I get a uh, hundred of those brand new stamps? Yeah, sure. That'll be fifty dollars. Out these changes, the Postmaster General says USPS will run out of money in less than a decade. The Postal Workers Union says it has deep concern over parts of the plan. Democratic lawmakers call it a non-starter. They want to see Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy, a Trump appointee, fired after his moves to slow down mail delivery during the election season. But that is not a quick process. All this is happening as the post office is struggling with record low on-time delivery throughout the pandemic and the holiday season, something that continues to this day. Take this priority mail. It may say two days. It took 10 to get from New York to Washington just this week. 
Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> how do you like them? Man? So that, that that's really bizarre. So 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 they so they so they so they do so they say yeah we're gonna do this, but I really I don't know how to. I don't know. This is it's just it's just really bizarre to think about in regards to the post office, and you know we all want our packages when we want them, but you know hey sometimes you gotta wait. Not much else you can do about it. Not much else you can do. All right. It is currently 49 minutes past the top of the hour. I uh, figured go ahead and just, uh, well, just, uh, yeah. All right. So let's see. I got, 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 got uh, let's see. Coming up on the other, uh, coming up in the second hour of the program, going to be uh, talking about, uh, I got a thing on Vincent Van Gogh because this Tuesday would have been his birthday. And also, I got a thing about, uh, well, let's see, uh, that, that's going to lead into a uh, little Starry Starry Night by Don McLean. I'm going to have an interesting little factoid about that. And uh, the other thing that I got is an explanation in regards to the, uh, uh, the uh, in regards to uh, the, the interior of Air Force One, what happens in Air Force One. So we'll be getting to that in a little bit. But first, ladies and gentlemen, I want to play this. Cause I was actually thinking about doing this. But then I decided, nah, it would kinda it would seem like I would be copying it would kind of seem as if I would be rehashing some of my old stuff. And I try not to do that. I try to get I try to give you brand new content whenever I can. And uh So earlier this month, Burger King made quite quite the gaffe when they posted on Twitter women should be in the kitchen and they posted this on March 8th International Women's Day and that got a lot of backlash as you know as as right as rightfully I think it should because in today's society you you can't be having this overtly sexist attitude especially towards women and so Burger King, they got a little bit of hot water for it. So I was wondering, I was thinking about an idea like what, like what if say if Andrew Dice Clay was to read spots for Burger King. But then I realized now I'd just be rehashing an old bit that I did. And this one's about five years old and still, it's still, it's, uh, well, it's one of my favorites. It's one that I had a lot of fun uh, making. And uh, I'll tell you the story about how it came to fruition real quick. Uh, in March of 2016, there was a Facebook page. Where, that wanted to get Gilbert Gottfried to play uh, to play Colonel Sanders in the commercials. So I was on vacation. I was in South Carolina for a wedding, uh, and uh, just to, you know, got in the hotel and I'm taking a shower, and that's when the idea came to me. I'm like, okay, well, look, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, you know, what if, you know, I saw this Facebook page. Yes, what? Yes, what if Gilbert Gottfried was the voice, did audition, but what if there were other people who auditioned? So you're going to, in this one, you're going to hear my impersonations of uh, Gilbert Gottfried, High Pitch Eric, Andrew Dice Clay, George Decay, and Christopher Walken. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. It's Colonel Sanders' audition, followed by the interlude. And more after this, this is The Lawrence Ross Show on iTunes or Spotify. Just search The Lawrence Ross Show. Or live on TF52.com or RadioChaos.net, K-A-O-S.net, Fridays at 7 Eastern Time. Back after this. Thank you for listening. 
Colonel Sanders audition, Gilbert Gottfried, take one, and rolling. A family walks into a talent agent's office. The father pulls down his pants, and the mother begins to suck his cock as if it contained 11 herbs and spices. The son pulls his sister's panties down, puts mashed potatoes and gravy in her asshole, and then eats it out. The father then takes a helping of coleslaw, sticks it up the mother's cunt, and then eats it out. They all stand up, take a bow, and say, THE ARISTOCRATS! Cut. That's not what we're looking for at all. Would you like for me to do it as the Aflac duck? What's the definition of foreplay in Kentucky? Hey, sis, are you awake? Send to the next audition, please. Don't call us, Gilbert. We'll call you. Aflac! Colonel Sanders audition, high pitch Eric from the Howard Stern Show, take one. Wait, wait, are you eating while you're doing this, man? Yeah. Mmm. This chicken's good. Mmm. Before the other boys are fucking pussy. Fine, just don't get any grease on the microphone. Fat fuck. All right, rolling. Mmm. Kentucky Fried Chicken has a great blend of lemon herbs and spices. Mmm. Mmm. That's good stuff. Mmm. Try it today, because if you don't, I'll fucking abuse you on your voicemail. Like this. You stupid motherfucker! If you don't try KFC's bucket of chicken, mashed potatoes, and coleslaw, I'm gonna fucking kill you and burn your fucking house down! Thank you, sir. Don't call us. We'll call you. Hey, you wanna see how much my shit weighs after I've eaten some Taco Bell? This man is clearly insane. Please send in the next audition. Andrew Dice Clay, Colonel Sanders audition, take one, and rolling! Hickory dickory duck! Your mother was sucking my cuck. The clock struck eight. I just done a plate. I ate KFC out of a box. I'm over here now. That's not in the script at all, Mr. Clay. Or Mr. Silverstein. Whatever your name is. It's the Dice Man, you dopey cocksucker. Didn't you used to work on a family-friendly show on CBS? Whose fucking information are you getting? Next! George Decay, Colonel Sanders audition, take one, and rolling. Oh my. The original 11 herbs and spices from the Colonel are very delicious. But something else that is very delicious is Brad's huge wang. Okay, that was good. Please send in the last audition for this current time period. Christopher Walken, reading for Colonel Sanders, take one, and rolling. The Colonel, he had 11 herbs and spices in his chicken. How did he do that? You know what would have made his chicken even better? More cowbell. Okay, that was great. Thank you everybody for coming out. I'm going on break. This show is about making the people happy while you enjoy whatever has been selected for the great. Lawrence is stepping away from the microphone to fill up on his leftover Taco Bell. Nobody going to bathroom for about 35, 45 minutes. The Lawrence Ross Show will return after this. Stay. 
Want to get involved in the program? Ain't nobody got time for that. Call or text the comment line 813-602-2715. Get off the phone with me, you wacky prick. This is the Lawrence Ross Show. Now back to our regular program. Another tequila sunrise Staring slowly across the sky Said goodbye The Lawrence Ross Show How's it going, everybody? He was just a hired man that song in a good long while man that's uh that is uh the doors with classic from their morrison hotel album that is a cut called waiting for the sun and they had an album called waiting for the sun but that wasn't on there that that had a, that had a five to one that had the unknown soldier which i'm going to be playing uh not 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 today i'm, I'm, I'm going to play it some other time but uh, would like to uh all right where's that thing oh okay 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 so uh, yeah so in that uh so in that colonel sanders bit that i did there's there's a part in the bit where where i say to die say look man what you want a family-friendly show on cbs and he goes whose fucking information are you getting that actually stemmed from an interview he did Back in 2003 on CNN, this is November 12th, 2003, and it's clear that the guy who's doing the interview, he obviously didn't do his research, as as a lot of these news people often don't, because he says something totally untrue about Dice, and Dice just lets this dude have it. Let's talk a little bit about uh, where your career has been. <laughs> I can't believe you, you know of course, I mean? you were you were a headline guy. I'm and still then, a headline guy. You know what I mean? For a while, you popped out. Now you're coming back. For a while, back, for a while, you were actually do, you, you, know were running, I mean? you were running a gym. Tell us about that. Running a gym? Weren't you running you a gym at some point? You're supposed to be a news guy. Where are you getting your fucking That's our research. You aren't. You aren't. This is ridiculous. I come on CNN, and the guy don't even know what he's talking about. Go ahead. You at no point were you running a gym? Um, no, no, running a gym. What, no, you, you need to work out or out? something? <laughs> uh, I love what he says there. That it's it's kind of it's kind of intercut with it's it's overlapping with the reporter. But Dice is like, "What do I need to work out or something?" <laughs> 
In all fairness, I don't know, just like, I don't know. Well, hang on, I want to wrap this up. I, I want to continue with my other thought here. Jesus fucking Christ with these guys. I come on the news for two seconds, and, and you want to say, every all time right. I do an interview, a guy wants to open his fucking mouth. Can't all right, Andrew, do a little thank you very much. Here. We thought that you, you could know, hold go back. fuck yourself. You know what? All I'm right. Fuck the whole fucking network. We'll go back to uh, talking about Art Carney. <laughs> that's telling him right there man i love that love that you know but i mean just like andrew s clay working at a you know running a gym i just i don't know hmm. could be idea for a new bit i don't know all right now for all the uh now for all the art lovers out there hang on let me get this thing plugged back in ah Okay, there we go. Now, for all the art lovers out there, this Tuesday would have been Vincent Van Gogh's birthday. And everyone knows about Vincent Van Gogh. Cut his ear off, supposedly, to try and uh, uh, get a relationship with a woman. And he also painted a Starry, Starry Night. But here's some other things about Vincent Van Gogh that you probably didn't know. And it, and it, and it leads right off with the ear slicing. So... <laughs> Uh, let's get into this, and this is courtesy of the YouTube channel Weird History, so here we go. In the summer of 1888, Van Gogh left Paris and headed to Provence, a region in the south of France. Supported financially by his art dealer brother Theo, he ultimately settled in the town of Arles. That's where he rented a house and began to dream of establishing an artist colony where he and other like-minded painters could live and work. Yeah, sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a pretty cut and dry kind of a thing. He wants to get something going. Theo and Vincent were acquainted with Paul Gauguin, another cutting-edge impressionist that both men admired professionally. It took some persuasion, but in October of 1888, Gauguin agreed to move to the house. Initially, the two artists functioned reasonably well together. Gauguin was a streetwise former stock exchange worker, and Van Gogh was a talented but troubled young man. I wonder what kind of stock chips they had back in the 1880s. <laughs> I wonder, 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 you know, in all fairness, they didn't have the New York, you know, they, they, they didn't, uh, I'm not sure if they had like that ticker tape, you know, with the little, you know, with the little, you know, they didn't have that, they didn't have the bell at Wall Street, which is actually just a button, I think. They didn't have that. So they just had to make do with what they had back then. Well, this is 1888, and this is France, by the way. So I wonder, wonder, wonder how they, uh, you know, wonder, wonder how they, uh, wonder they deal their stocks in France. I, I don't know. Unfortunately, the acerbic and condescending Gauguin and the sensitive, needy Vincent Van Gogh quickly began to get on each other's nerves. Uh oh, personality clash. They're getting along about as well as oil and water, ladies and gentlemen. Stay out. It's gonna get ugly. Eventually, sensing that Gauguin was preparing to abandon him in the so-called artistic colony, Van Gogh got drunk and angry. According to Gauguin, on December 23rd, after yet another savage argument, he moved out and checked into a hotel where Van Gogh threatened him with a knife. I would have loved it. I would have, you know, you know, I, I, I love, you know, you see like footage on YouTube or on MTV or whatever of of people getting kicked out of uh, someone else's house because they've really screwed up royally. I can imagine what that must sound like in France, you know? Oh, oh, oui. oh, oui. hey, monsieur, don't ever come back here again. Oh, you know, <laughs> wonder if that sort of thing, you know, I wonder, wonder, wonder what do, uh, I wonder if one Frenchman runs for another Frenchman. Does, does the guy who's not running, does he call out like, hey, come back here, you pansy. Oh, Oh, you run like a pansy. You run like a little frog. 
<laughs> I honestly don't know. That would be kind of interesting, though. Hearing French people argue. Supposedly, Van Gogh sliced off much of his left earlobe, walked to a familiar brothel, and presented the bloody appendage to a prostitute named Rachel. Uh, <laughs> hey, you never saw that on Friends. You never saw, you never saw Ross, <laughs> Ross never did that to Rachel. Rachel fainted on the spot. Flowers <laughs> might have been a better choice, and less bloody. <laughs> Flowers might have been a better choice, and maybe, but in all fairness, I mean, like, you know, hey, if he's short on dough, how's he going to, you know, my question is, how... How's it going to be able to like afford like a, like a corsage or something, like a corset for her, you know? Because Gauguin's self-serving account is the only one that remains, speculation about its accuracy continues to this day. Uh, so it's still being under question. It's like, hmm, is this really the case? One recent theory holds that Gauguin, an accomplished fencer, was actually the one who lopped off the ear during the pair's final argument. Whatever the case, Van Gogh evaded police on the night of the 23rd. However, since they knew his identity, the authorities eventually made it to his home, where they discovered him in his blood-soaked bed. The young artist was taken to the hospital, and eventually committed himself to a mental asylum. Although the two artists would never see each other again, they would continue to correspond. Uh-oh. I can't imagine what that must have been like. In fact, just weeks later, Gauguin would send Van Gogh a letter requesting the return of paintings that he had previously gifted to Vincent. <coughs> Friend breakups are never pretty. <laughs> so I guess you could say that was the 1880s French version of, Hey, I want my stuff back, man. Seriously. <laughs> In today's universe, that's like... In the Sage Universe, that would be like the equivalent of sending a text to one of your former friends. Hey, man, I'm coming over to get my Xbox 360, and I want to make sure the hard drive is totally fine, and I want to make sure that you didn't play Grand Theft Auto V on there, man. I was I was at a good spot, and I don't want to lose my damn place. I'm coming over there. Maybe. I, I don't know. Could be the case. In 1889, Van Gogh was invited to exhibit at Les Vins, the 20, an annual art show in Brussels sponsored by 20 local artists who displayed their own work as well as the work of invitees. Vincent submitted three landscapes, two sunflower studies, and a painting titled The Red Vineyard. Anna Bosch, the sister of one of Van Gogh's friends, paid 400 francs for the painting, which is about the equivalent of $2,000 today. Van Gogh's wow. work had been greeted by many in the art community. Wait a second, wait a second. 400 francs is roughly $2,000? Man, that's... Hang on, I do a little quick calculation here. Hold on a second. Hey, Alexa! How much is one franc equal to an American dollar? Okay, here's the currency. One Alani Rial, our currently worth $39.02. Uh, that didn't really help. It said something totally different, but still... That that's 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 something. When it's like four hundred francs. Wait, hang on a minute. Hey, Alexa. Four hundred francs equals how many American dollars? Oh. <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> my 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 question was met with a. Guess is an American clothing brand. <laughs> Dang it. Oh, all right. Oh, wait, all right. Wait, wait. Stop, stop. Hey, Alexa. 400 francs is how many American dollars? 400 French francs is about 71 U.S. dollars and 90 cents. 71 dollars, approximately. And, th and this was back in the 18... I don't know that. This is back in the 1800s, so... 
Maybe they're talking about adjusted for inflation? I don't know. To sunflower studies and a painting titled The Red Vineyard. Anna Bosch, the sister of one of Van Gogh's friends, paid 400 francs for the painting, which is about the equivalent of $2,000 today. Van Gogh's work had been greeted by many in the art community with derision, so Anna made the purchase to encourage him. Amazingly, this is the only publicly recorded sale of a Van Gogh that occurred in his lifetime. Oh, man. Man, that, that, that's got to be really disappointing. Today, the Red Vineyard hangs in the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. Oh, nice. In May of 1889, Van Gogh voluntarily committed himself to the St. Paul Asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. He was granted some studio space so he could paint, and many of the works that he turned out during this period were merely landscapes of the view from his asylum room. Because he couldn't really go outside to take it all in, so he had to draw it from memory. Minus the bars. However, for what would become his most famous painting, The Starry Night, he was allowed to sketch a nightscape. The swirling skies and aura around the stars have been interpreted as everything from the symbolism of infinity to the hallucinations resulting from Van Gogh's mental illness. Today, it's worth millions, but the artist thought so little of the starry night that he actually withheld it from the batches of paintings he routinely sent to his brother to sell in Paris because he wanted to save money on postage. Or maybe it could be a case of him just having that thing where the artist has just got done making something and they're like, nah, I don't like this one. <laughs> I'm not liking the way this one turned out. <laughs> I've had instances where that's happened before. Like, I've made a bit before and, and you know, it's it sound, sounds okay when I'm making it. Then I play it back and I'm like, wow, this one really sucks. Stand by. Of the painting, he commented in a letter... Once again, I let myself go, reaching for stars that are too big. A new failure. And I have had enough of it. Wow! Way to have confidence in yourself, sir! Wow! You know, you know, it's no, you know, it's, you know, it's no one, no wonder this guy never had a relationship. He didn't have any confidence, basically. That's, that's what I'm gathering. Enough of it. Without Theo Van Gogh, you would never have heard of Vincent Van Gogh. It, it was Theo who first encouraged his brother to pursue art as a vocation. And because his instability and mental illness made him virtually unemployable, most of Vincent's financial support came from Theo as well. Theo was also a strong proponent of Impressionist art and artists, when it was still a relatively undiscovered school of painting. I wonder if, wonder if they did any of that wet-on-wet wet paint on wet paint stuff like what Bob Ross used to do back in the day. <laughs> in all fairness, in all fairness, at least, you know, I mean, I mean, can you, can you imagine if Vincent Van Gogh had a TV show and he was trying to teach you how to paint Starry Starry Night? Can you imagine what that would be like? Everyone, everyone, everyone would probably just be focusing on the, focusing on the fact that he cut his ear off. Vincent lived with Theo in Paris from 1886 until 1888. And through Theo's business contacts, he met some of the most prominent artists of the time period, including Toulouse-Lautrec, Never heard of them. Bizarro, Seurat, Cezanne, and of course, Gauguin. Okay, I've only heard the last name, Gauguin, but other, uh, the other names, I've never heard of them. Theo and Vincent's remarkable relationship and Theo's unflagging encouragement and emotional support are chronicled in the numerous letters that they exchanged. Discussing his brother with another artist friend, Theo even prophetically commented, I should not be surprised if my brother were one of the great geniuses and will one day be compared to someone like Beethoven. Huh. Oh, oh, funeral march music. 
Get the tissues, folks. Here comes a sad segment of the program. On July 27, 1890, Van Gogh made his way to the wheat fields just north of his residence at an inn in Auvers-sur-Oise. He had borrowed a pistol from his innkeeper for the stated purpose of scaring off crows while he was painting. Instead, he is believed to have turned the gun on himself. Coincidentally, one of Van Gogh's final paintings is the haunting and symbolic wheat fields with crows, an abstract work filled with black crows, paths leading nowhere, and ominous skies. Oh, man. And, of course, there's that movie, The Crow, with, uh, with uh, Brandon Lee, where his character is fatally shot. So that's just, I don't know, that, that's, that's a, it's a very spooky, very spooky uh, way to look at it. Vincent Van Gogh, he said he wanted to go out and scare some crows. He shot himself, we think. And, uh, of course, The Crow, all I can think of is the movie The Crow. And The Crow, the Crow's got to be one of the strangest franchises ever. Like, like, this, like this guy, like, what I can gather is he's a, he's a guy, but he dies and he comes back to try to avenge his own death or something. I've, I've, I've never understood it. And I've, and I've never watched any of the, uh, the Crow movies in the franchise. I do know that uh, Big Empty by Stone Temple Pilots is on the soundtrack. I know that. I know that the guy who inadvertently shot Brandon Lee, he has never watched the movie. Which it makes sense because you know he'd, he'd have that survivor's guilt going on because that's pretty much what happened. He he uh, uh, a, a prop gun wasn't wasn't loaded properly, so they bring in Brandon Lee to do this scene. Gun goes off. Sorry about that. Uh, gun goes off and he hits the floor dead for real. Everybody thought he was just acting, but then but then they realized, uh oh, we we uh. uh you know, it was, but anyway, yeah, that's all I can think of. Crows and anyway, what the heck? It depicts the field. Oh, there we go. Okay. Where Van Gogh attempted to kill himself, wounding himself in the chest, he would stumble back to his inn, saying little about what he had done, and die thirty hours later with his brother at his side. The cemetery that Vincent and Theo are buried in is only a few hundred feet from the spot on which he finished the painting. It's a little freaky if you ask me. Vincent Van Gogh was reclusive and, by most accounts, socially inept. However, he still attempted to romance and even marry almost every female acquaintance he ever had. Huh. Is he a hopeless romantic like me, or I don't know? For example, while living in England... I'd just like to clarify that I do not attempt to... You know, date or marry every single woman that I encounter. You know, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a bit of a screening process. Yet so far it hasn't worked. Oh, dude. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Man, you and I after the show, whew, it's it's gonna get ugly, dude. Lynn, in his early twenties, he was rebuffed by the daughter of a landlady who was engaged to another man. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's like, hey, I'm a, hey, look, man, hey, hey, see this thing right here, this engagement ring. This means stop right here. This is where all this is. This is where the dates end, man. It's over. He was also famously rejected by his first cousin with the phrase "No, nay, never." Yeah. Well, in fairness, it's his first cousin. I mean, you know, it's not like it's 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 not you know. I mean, you know, and you know, at least didn't at least didn't result in incest. Hey, cuz. One was probably enough. <laughs> Demonstrating behavior that today we would identify as stalking, he then showed up in Amsterdam to continue the pursuit. His cousin, for her part, would not even agree to see him. 
In 1882, Van Gogh made the acquaintance of a seamstress and prostitute named Klesina Maria Hornick. Hornick had a five-year-old daughter and was expecting a child fathered by a man who had abandoned her. Eventually, she would move in with Van Gogh, making it the only known domestic relationship he enjoyed in his life. He told Theo he wanted to marry the woman, but his apoplectic pastor father demanded he end the relationship, and his brother advised the same. Vincent eventually left Klesina Hornick. As a parting gift, it turns out she gave Vincent the gift of gonorrhea. Oh, yay! <laughs> uh, the gift that keeps on giving. I'll never forget when I was seven years old, I was listening to the radio, and I it, it was my first exposure to... Uh, big talk radio but i didn't know I, I didn't know a lot about it at the time i just knew of talk radio there were these dudes don and mike on and uh yeah they're don and mike and uh they were broadcasting out of uh washington but it was syndicated to uh tampa and other markets and so so they did this jeopardy parody one day and and one of the one of the contestants he, he kept he kept saying gonorrhea over and over again so me being a kid, you know, you know, you know, what kids are when they hear dirty words they run in the house and they parrot them to drive the parents crazy and all that stuff. Well, you know, I start doing that. You know, I'm seven years old. I'm going, gonorrhea, gonorrhea. My mom says to me, uh, "You probably shouldn't listen to that radio station anymore because it gives you inappropriate information." <laughs> inappropriate information. Well, uh, I mean, at least I'm using a proper medical term. But yeah, a seven-year-old, yeah. They probably they probably shouldn't know what the word gonorrhea means, but if they find out, hey, look, that that's on them, you know. <laughs> Damn kids. All right, continuing. Van Gogh was one of six children in his family, and he wasn't the only one who struggled with mental illness for his entire adult life and then ended it in suicide. Theo Van Gogh died under mysterious circumstances that are historically obscure, but may have been related to syphilis, suicide, or mental illness. Under mysterious circumstances? What the heck is this? Is this like, it's like one of those like cop dramas or something? Where the partner's dead? Is it, is it one, of, one, of, one of those deals? <laughs> I don't know. Either way. The third brother, Cornelius, was 14 years younger than Vincent and lived in South Africa. After his marriage disintegrated, he enlisted during the Boer-British conflict, was captured, and ended his life at the age of 33. Wilhelmina Van Gogh would spend the last four decades of her life in a mental institution, suffering from conditions that were similar to Vincent's maladies. Man, it just when you, man, it just when you thought the Kennedy clan was cursed, you know, now you got this. <laughs> Ugh. I went back to my mother. She said, I said, I'm crazy, Ma, help me. She said, I know how you feel, son, because it runs in the family. It's from The Who, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. It's from the uh, album Quadrophenia, and it's a song called The Real Me. Really good song. The innkeeper who housed Vincent Van Gogh at the Auberge Ravou for the last three months of the artist's life was Arthur Ravou. His family got to know the artist, who even took his meals with him. In fact, it was his absence at dinner on the day he attempted suicide that first alerted everyone something was seriously wrong. Upon Van Gogh's death, Arthur Ravou, not wanting to appear greedy, refused any additional paintings from Theo, save for the two he already possessed, a portrait of his daughter Adeline, and a landscape of the Auvergne Town Hall, which Van Gogh painted from the street in front of the inn. 
of paintings were displayed in the auberge until the Ravoux family moved to the town of Moulin and operated a cafe there. In 1905, two American artists staying in Moulin heard that Arthur Ravoux had two Van Goghs and asked to see them. When they mentioned that the paint was already deteriorating and he should give the artworks to them to be preserved properly, Ravoux demanded that he be paid something, despite his belief that the paintings were virtually worthless. They quickly settled on a price, 40 francs, the equivalent of about 10 American dollars at the time, and around 300 of today's dollars. 40 francs, that's it? Jeez, well, wait, $10 back then? All right, well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I think their math's a little off, I think. Joanna Jo Van Gogh Bonaire was born in Amsterdam in 1862 and married Theo Van Gogh in 1889. While this should have been a happy occurrence for both, the marriage and the son it produced may have been the main factors in Vincent's decision to end his own life. Many believe that Vincent feared that Theo, now with a growing family, would soon be unable to support him. With Theo's death shortly after Vincent's, it was left to Joe Van Gogh to make something of the then-worthless artistic legacy. She promoted Vincent's work to prominent art dealers and through her publication of Letters to Theo in 1914. The book began a public fascination with the work and life of Vincent van Gogh that never subsided. After her death, her son Vincent Willem, named for his uncle, continued her work and established the foundation that is responsible for the Vincent van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Nice. like to visit that one of these days. That, that, that'd, be, that'd be something to do. It's not like you could see like story, story night. Ah, oh, shut up, man. In 1990, one of the two Van Gogh Portrait of Dr. Gachet paintings was auctioned off by its owners. The painting was one of several Van Goghs owned by banker Siegfried Kramarski, who died in 1961. Kramarski bought the painting when the Nazi government purged it from a Frankfurt art museum and ordered it sold because they considered Van Gogh a degenerate. The auction caused a sensation in the art world when a Japanese industrialist, Ryoe Saito, bid $82.5 million, an amount that far exceeded the expected price of $40 million, and set a new world record. Saito irritated many in the art world by placing the painting in his private office, and then declaring that, upon his death, he wanted to be cremated while clutching the portrait in his arms. Wow, man. That's going to be one of the biggest dick moves ever, man. Lucky for the art world, Saito subsequently experienced severe financial difficulties, and the painting was reportedly sold. Its whereabouts today, however, are unknown. Ah. The record price would stand until May 2004, when it was broken by Picasso's Boy with a Pipe, which sold for $93 million. Damn. That, that art get pretty valuable over time. Anyway, I uh, want to play this song real quick. I'll, I'll be back after it, so don't worry. I just want to play it because it's a very lovely song. It's uh, And I was thinking about doing karaoke to it, but uh, meh, I'll just let the man do it. I'll let the man himself do it. Because when you tried to do American Pie, you kind of sucked at it. Oh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. You guys enjoy Vincent Starry Starry Night by Don McLean. I got a good deal with Stewie. Back after this, it's the Lord's Ross Show. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray 
Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now Starry, starry night Flowers that brightly blaze Swirling clouds in violet haze Reflecting Vincent's eyes of china blue Colors changing hue Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen for they could not love you But still your love was true And when no hope was left inside On that starry, starry night You took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you Starry, starry night Portraits hung in empty halls Frameless heads on nameless walls With eyes that watch the world and can't forget like the strangers that you've met The ragged men in ragged clothes A silver thorn, a bloody rose Lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they're not listening still Perhaps they never Lawrence Ross Show. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was Vincent. Starry, Starry Night by Don McLean, which I read was 
Tupac Shakur's favorite song. And uh, I, I just find it to be so interesting because we all have our roots in regards to what got us into what it is that we enjoy. And so everyone's got their favorites. And I just, I, I always found it to be kind of interesting that uh, Tupac Shakur, gangster rapper, his favorite favorite song was a very peaceful song about a man who, well, seemed like a very misunderstood artist. And I first heard that song on an episode of The Simpsons. And uh, they used like the first little bit of it. They used the Star Starry Night portion because of uh, the episode dealt with uh, 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 astronomy, looking up at uh, the sky and stuff like that. Anyway, want to get into this, uh, but I got to be kind of quick about it because I know it's like a ten-minute thing, and I want to be able to. Uh, anyway, so here we go. This is a thing I found this is from Weird History, another another Weird History video about what's inside Air Force One. This this is really interesting. So here we go. Imagine you have to fly somewhere for a big business meeting, but uh-oh, a nuclear war breaks out. Uh-oh. Curse you, Spirit Airlines. <laughs> now, Spirit Airlines, I've only heard like one or two bad stories about them, but I've heard horrible stories about Frontier Airlines. If you want, you can Google search Frontier Airlines horror stories. You'll probably get some pretty frightening results. Well, if you were an average citizen, you'd be pretty much screwed. But if you were the President of the United States, you might be able to proceed as planned. How so? Well, Air Force One is more than just a plane. It's also a flying nuclear bunker. Oh, that's pretty cool. The aircraft actually has such heavily reinforced armor that it's theoretically capable of withstanding a nuclear blast. Wait, wait, wait. Theor theoretically capable of withstanding a nuclear blast. Not like they tried it or anything, but what? What, did they just, what, did they just make it out of this really, really tough tough material and they figure okay maybe there's a possibility that a nuclear blast might mess it up but we haven't tested it yet and just to add some other protections the windows are bulletproof and its defense system can jam enemy radar as well as deflect missiles and electromagnetic pulses all right seems pretty safe to me as one of the most powerful leaders in the world the president is constantly subject to threats on his life as such, the designers of Air Force One paid special attention to security risks created by the plane's interaction with airport equipment that isn't under federal government control. For example, getting off most jets means climbing down a set of stairs or ramp that's attached to the plane from the outside. But to mitigate any security risks with airport staircases, Air Force One is equipped with a uniquely retractable set of stairs that extends outward from the body of the plane. For the same reasons, the plane is also equipped with its own baggage loader that allows staff to closely monitor what goes in and out of the cargo hold. Oh, well, that makes sense. And at least, at least it doesn't get mixed in with all the other, you know, stuff that you find at the airport, you know. <laughs> at, least, at, at least they have it in their own contained unit to the point where they know where everything is at all times. So, you know, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't have to worry about, say, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Bill Clinton losing one of his... Uh, you know, you'll do, you know, losing one of his bags or something. Ah, oh, damn it! I had my best pair of socks in there, and my favorite toothbrush, and uh, the picture of Monica. Oh, wait a second! I didn't mean to say that too loud. Sorry, Hillary. What? What do you mean? Fuck you! Oh, fuck you, Hillary! These precautions make trying to topple the president by placing a bomb in a set of airport stairs or sneaking one into the baggage loader a non-issue. Anyone who has seen the 1997 film Air Force One... Badass movie, by the way. From what I remember of it, because I only saw bits and pieces of it when I was a kid, 
and I was kind of drifting in and out of sleep. So, I don't know, maybe we should probably watch it again, maybe. Knows that the president's plane needs to be prepared for anything, including a mid-air terrorist attack by Gary Oldman. <laughs> that results in fistfights and shootouts. When is America going to stand up to Gary Oldman? Get off my plane. Should something like that, or, you know, a less fantastical medical situation, occur on the president's plane, they'll be prepared to deal with it. Hey, at least they got it under control. You know, uh, 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 on January 22nd on this program, I played a thing about uh, the presidential limo. Now this is about uh, Air Force One. Good for you that you are coming in with programs. Oh, boy. You and I are going to have it out at the end of the show, man. <sighs> oh, boy. Uh, it's it's, it's going to get pretty ugly in here in a minute, folks. That's because Air Force One is equipped with far more than just a first aid kit. The plane has a medical annex that includes a pharmacy and operating table with surgical lights, along with equipment like a defibrillator, IV pumps, and suction devices. Nice. Moreover, a nurse is also on board to handle any potential health emergencies. Hold on. Hold on a second, folks. Imagine... Stand by. Doot-doot-doot. 30... A non-issue. There we go. 45... Ah! Be prepared to deal with it. There we go. That's because Air Force One is equipped with far more than just a first aid kit. Well, I would hope so. I mean, it's the president, you know? The plane has a medical annex that includes a pharmacy and operating table with surgical lights. What, has he got, like, his own CVS or something? Along with equipment like a defibrillator, IV pumps, and suction devices. Moreover, a nurse is also on board to handle any potential health emergencies. Yeah, well, there you go. That's good to know. On your average commercial jetliner, running out of a gas mid-flight would be a fairly significant problem. I think we're leaking gas. <laughs> you smell gas? I, th I think we're leaking gas. <laughs> it's like I think it's that scene in the movie Speed. <laughs> Great movie, by the way. Continuing. But on most planes that have been called Air Force One, running out of gas wasn't really a concern at all. Why not? Well, as with military combat aircraft, the president's ride in the sky was traditionally designed to be able to keep flying in the event of an emergency or if unsafe conditions exist on the ground. That being the case, these planes had the capability to refuel while in midair. The procedure for midair refueling wasn't exactly easy, but it wasn't terribly complicated either. Yeah, well, still, I mean, you know, it, it, it still seems kind of hair-raising. Let's, let's, let's find out what that's about. The way it worked was that a fuel plane would fly into the proximity of Air Force One, match its speed, then connect to provide enough fuel to top off its tanks. While the procedure was well tested, it wasn't completely risk-free. No, of course not, because you're only going, what, 600 miles an hour as you're flying across, you know, flying across the skyline? So it was only meant to be used in truly dire situations. Why the past tense here? Well, in a move that stunned politicians from both parties on Capitol Hill, President Donald Trump had the new Air Force Ones designed without this capability. Why? Well, it was part of an effort to cut millions of dollars from the multi-billion dollar budget that pays for the planes. We are cutting millions to pay for the billions for the greatest plane ever in the United States of America. And the best thing about Air Force One, it is a great bathroom, and the ladies, they let you move on them. When you're a rock star, they let you do anything, including grabbing them by the pussy. All right, thank you, Mr. President. Everyone loves talking on the phone and watching television. And the 
President of the United States is no exception. That's why the designers of the Commander-in-Chief's plane spared no expense in making sure the phone lines never go down on Air Force One. <laughs> Wait a second now. <laughs> Hang on a minute now. You're traveling at like 600 miles an hour, going from Washington all the way to, say, I don't know, like, uh, um, uh, I don't know, like uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, to try and uh, drum up support for your next election. And, you know, who really has time to be yakking on the phone and trying to watch sports when you're trying to, you know, when you're the world's most powerful man? How that, you know, how do you squeeze all that in? Okay, that's not exactly true. In fact, the reason they did it is because the plane doubles as a mobile command center. And at any time, it could be required to help the president run operations all over the world. Eh, good idea. To this end, Air Force One features nearly 240 miles of electronic wiring, with 85 phones and dozens of TV screens installed. 85 phones? Holy jeez! Sure, sure, it's a command center. And a sweet spot to watch Sunday football. <laughs> For most people, eating while in flight usually boils down to a choice between the regular or kosher meals. Or can you get a bag of those salted peanuts? Actually, you know what? I'm not sure if they really serve the peanuts all that much anymore on planes because a lot of people are allergic to them. Or they, like, unshell the peanuts or whatever. And they give it, and they give it like, a... They really don't give you a lot of, like... You know, when, when you only have, like, a two-hour domestic flight, they really don't give you all that much to choose from. It's like, okay, uh, here's a check mix, uh, snack mix, grab bag of uh, snacks. Or you can take the trail mix. Or would you like uh, water, soda... Beer, beer's complimentary, by the way, in some cases. In some cases. That is, assuming they're even offered a meal. Frequent flyers will attest that often the menu is limited to a bag of pretzels and a bottle of water, if anything at all. Thanks a lot, JetBlue. But the Air Force One kitchen is operating at a whole other level. It actually has two food preparation galleys stocked with stoves, ovens, microwaves, and refrigerators. And each flight is capable of feeding over 100 people. On top of that, the chefs who work on Air Force One can make nearly anything the president requests, whether or not it's on the prepared menu. Oh, that's nice, you know. So, if, say, I don't know, you know, so if, say Joe Biden wants some pancakes, you know, think I can whip up some pancakes for him. Not a problem. Boom. And while most of us eat our airplane food off a plastic tray, the president gets his meals served on China, adorned with the presidential seal. <laughs> Don't you think it's a little much? I mean, you know, the president kind of already knows who he is. He should know the presidential seal. But let's keep reminding him of that, you know? It'd <laughs> be, be like, you know, it'd be like, it'd be like, say you go to like 20th Century Fox and you want to talk to someone about something and, you know, you have a big business, you know, you have a business meeting with them. And it's like, it's like the president of Fox and he's got this plate and it's got the 20th Century Fox logo right on it. And it's got like his name, like president's like, that's a little unnecessary if you ask me. That's just me, though. Ever wonder if that person standing in line behind you at the grocery store is actually a top secret government chef surreptitiously buying ingredients for the president's meals? Huh? No? Well, they might be. Huh. Well, that's interesting, you know. <laughs> it's, it's not like, in all fairness, you're going to be telling people. It's not like, you know. It's like you're going to be going through, like, uh, you know, uh, the refrigerator aisle, going through the milk, you know, you know, you're trying to find the milk and you accidentally bump someone with your cart. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't see you there. Hey, not a problem. Hey, listen, keep this on the down low, but I'm buying a cereal for Joe Biden. 
All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to buy him some Fruit Loops. He really likes those. And also the milk, too. i got to get the milk and also some sugar. Yeah. For security reasons, the Air Force One chefs who prepare the onboard meals do, in fact, go undercover to local grocery stores to purchase ingredients. As an added safety step, they visit stores randomly. Staff also do not purchase any food from overseas. Yeah, there you go. So they buy all that. So they could... So theoretically, they could buy. You know, they could theoretically buy that store-bought stuff. That's 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 the kind, that's kind of stuff that Chef Ramsay always yells about on Kitchen Nightmares. This is store-bought crab. What are you fucking doing? It's store-bought crab. You idiots! For reasons of security and safety, and possibly also for bragging rights. The president's plane is capable of doing some things that most similar jets simply cannot pull off. Like into a barrel roll? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm pretty sure he can do that. Alright, I got a few minutes left on this and then I gotta wrap it up. For example, while commercial airlines typically fly at around 30,000 feet, Air Force One is capable of getting all the way up to 45,100 feet. But wait a second, wait a second now. What, what, what about the sudden change in cabin pressure? What about that? Do the when when do the oxygen masks start to drop, if that's the case? Along with its ability to reach great heights, Air Force One is also incredibly fast, even for essentially a passenger plane. In fact, it's able to go more than 600 miles an hour, almost the speed of sound. Wait, wait, almost the speed of sound. But the speed of sound is 300,000... No, wait, no, I'm sorry. It's, no, I'm sorry, that's the speed of light. 300,000 kilometers per second is the speed of light. I'm not sure what the speed of sound is. You think I'd probably know being blind, but uh, I don't. It's wild that you know. It's wild that I know the speed of light, but yet I don't know the speed of sound. And yet you can't see light. Oh man. Oh boy. <laughs> you and I. Oh boy. <laughs> I think someone's gonna get their ass kicked tonight. That, that's just my opinion. I don't know. But either way. I only got 10 minutes left on this program. With 4,000 square feet of space on three levels at its disposal, Air Force One provides a lot more than just a luxury ride in the sky. As previously mentioned, the plane doubles as mobile command center, with state-of-the-art electronics capable of communicating with military operations around the world. In the event of an emergency, the president can issue commands as needed, all from the safety of this flying fortress. But even with all of that, there is a ton of space left over. The plane can also carry the president's entire staff, his guests, and various members of the White House press pool. Ah, there you go. Enough room for everybody, right? Yeah, of course. Getting any plane off the ground is an intricate operation, but getting the president's plane off the ground is a full-fledged military operation. The process for getting Air Force One airborne is literally carried out with military precision. This is to ensure that everything is prepared for the commander-in-chief to board. How does it work? Well, first, the president is transported via helicopter from the White House to Maryland's Andrews Air Force Base. Next, the plane and runway are inspected by members of the Air Force to ensure their safety. Finally, the Air Force transports the president's motorcade to the waiting plane. It's a lot to go through, but when your passenger is the most powerful politician in the world, the precautions are all necessary. I mean, it makes sense, but I mean, like, would the average citizen truly want this? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Jimmy Carter, he was an average citizen before he became president. He was a, you know, he was a peanut farmer back in the day. When flying, the president never flies alone. 
In fact, Air Force One has a hefty wingman with a super badass name. The, the Doomsday, Doomsday Plane. plane. <laughs> I like the Doomsday Plane. The president's ride is typically accompanied by a Boeing E-4B that can stay in the air for days and remains on constant alert in case of a nuclear threat or national emergency. We know how much fuel that thing has if it can stay in the air for days, man. Staffed by military analysts and strategists, the Doomsday Plane is a flying strategy room where military analysts and strategists can execute orders and coordinate actions on the ground. According to the Air Force, the E-4B, known as the National Airborne Operations Center, is protected against the effects of electromagnetic pulse and includes nuclear and thermal effects shielding. So, you might be wondering, hey, if I could manage to get a ride on Air Force One, would I be able to snag a seat next to the president? No, you can't. You definitely can't. <laughs> yep. Average citizen can't hang out with the president. Air Force Without the proper clearance first. Air Force One has assigned seating for everyone aboard. To ensure the safety of the president, it's understandably best to know who's who and where they are at all times. Makes sense. In fact, along with the president's staff, nearly half the seats on board are already reserved for Secret Service agents and members of the press. Well, that's something. So, you know, it's, it's not like, you know... <laughs> I can, I can, I can, I can imagine what that must have been like back in the day. Like back in like the late 90s, mid to late 90s. Tom Brokaw having to fly in Air Force One. Or, you know, who, you know whoever, whoever's working for NBC having to fly in on Air Force One. That could be an idea for a new bit. Maybe. Anyway, continuing. Guests of the president do get to sit in a VIP area close to the front of the plane. But for security reasons, others can't walk forward beyond their own seat. As you might imagine. Wait a second, though. What if, uh, now, now my question is, it, what, hang on. I'll get to my question after this, but first I want to ride this out. As you might imagine, a flight on Air Force One is not a budget travel experience. Well, no kidding. It's not like it's like Southwest or JetBlue or Delta or American Airlines. Not even close. Uh -uh. According to some estimates, it costs at least $206,000 an hour to operate the plane. Damn! $206,000 $206, roughly an hour to keep that thing in the... Uh, Keep the thing in the air? Oof. Something. What does all that money pay for? Well, expenses include fuel, state-of-the-art communications equipment, maintenance and upkeep, gourmet food, and salaries. Not only for onboard staff and pilots, but also wages for Secret Service members and other presidential employees who are on the clock while aboard. Okay, so I guess the breakdown does make sense. In truth, Air Force One isn't a plane. It's actually two planes. This is because all modes of transportation go out of commission sometimes for maintenance or repairs. And one of the most important vehicles in the entire country is no exception. So when Air Force One is down for repairs, its twin is always available to get the president where he needs to go. The president is unlikely to notice the difference, though, as both Air Force One planes, which are housed at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, are equipped with the exact same features. Ah, so there you go. That, that's, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool they got all that uh, taken care of. But my question is, you know what they didn't tell us? They didn't tell us where the, you know, they didn't tell us where the emergency exits are, nor where, you know, nor where the laboratories are located. <laughs> okay. Well, I only got a couple minutes left, so I might as well just go ahead and just, uh, just, uh, 
just say thank you to everybody for listening to the program tonight. I greatly appreciate it, even though nobody called in or uh, texted or tweeted. But uh, thank you, everybody, if you're out there listening. Uh, but, yeah, uh, just thank you. Yeah, so just if, uh, thank you to everybody who has been uh, who's been providing the uh, uh, feedback. I saw, I saw, very, I saw, I saw, I saw a nice, saw nice little thing on uh iTunes, where somebody had rated the show, where two people had rated the show five stars. Thank you, everybody. Nobody's written a review just yet, but uh, give it time. Give it time. All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for me, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lawrence Ross. Thanks for tuning in. As I always say, see with your heart and do good. I'll be back with you next Friday, same time, same station, with more content. Hope you all enjoy it, and just uh, keep spreading the word, folks. Keep uh, going to uh, teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash Ross 1987 You can buy my merchandise. Check out the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Ross 1987 or uh, tweet me, twitter.com at blindlawrence. Thank you to uh, Sterile for uh, checking out the program tonight, sir. Thank you, man. And uh, Instagram is Instagram.com forward slash Blind Lawrence. I haven't used that in a while. YouTube.com forward slash Lawrence Ross. I have not. I, I haven't done a video on that in a long time. I, I, I should probably get back into that. Maybe, I don't know, make some changes. I don't know. But either way, ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you so much for listening. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Snowflake song that I recorded la- uh, about two weeks ago. Aired last week on the program. Got some really good response out of it, so I'm going to play it again as the show closer. Again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I'm Lawrence Ross. See you with your heart and do good. And I'll see you on the radio next Friday. Bye, everybody. Take it easy. Be good to each other. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. You can't handle the truth. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I am getting tired. Really getting tired of these cocksuckers. It's Generations Lame. You suck! All they do is complain. Ah, boo-hoo! What's their fucking deal? Freedom they want to steal. North, East, West, and South. These douchebags should shut their mouths. Shut up. They rant and rave online. For that shit, I've got no time. Hey, where's your sense of adventure? Take a fucking chance, will you? Bunch of goddamn pussies. Goddamn pussies. Pussies. Cannot say man or woman. That's their fucking spiel. I'm PC, bro. I'll throw down. Gender neutral is their plan. How's that make you feel? I'm as mad as hell. Mad as hell. Pissed off like the Taliban. The language police. Lingo Nazis. They're fucking myopic pussies. All you snowflakes practice fake outrage. They're all fucking myopic pussies. All you snowflakes practice fake outrage. They're all fucking myopic pussies. All of you snowflakes practice fake outrage. They're all fucking myopic pussies.
pussies Fucking myopic pussies They're only words. It's the context that counts. It's the user. It's the intention behind the words that makes them good or bad. The words are completely neutral. The words are innocent. Creators under fire Walking on a high wire Can't have any fun They're fucking up tycons Hindering our speech Our limit has been reached Don't fucking tread on me Fuck participation trophies No child these days ever gets to hear those all-important character-building words You lost, Bobby! You lost, Bobby! Cannot say man or woman That's their fucking spiel Microaggression Cultural appropriation Gender neutral is their plan How's that make you feel? I'm as mad as hell, mad as hell Pissed off like the Taliban The language police Lingo Nazis They're fucking myopic Pussies. Are you snowflakes practice fake outrage? They're all fucking myopic pussies. Are you snowflakes practice fake outrage? They're all fucking myopic pussies. Are you snowflakes practice fake outrage? They're all fucking myopic pussies. Fucking myopic pussies Fucking myopic pussies So say goodnight to the bad guy You are the motherfucking antichrist You've been listening to the Lawrence Ross Show Email the show blindlawrence at gmail.com There's a letter in your mailbox Follow him on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all ending in forward slash blind Lawrence. Be careful of the fucking wall! Check out his YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Lawrence Ross. Become a fan of the show on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Ross 1987 I'll send your shiny happy ass a friend request. Rate and subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow the show on Spotify. Search Lawrence Ross. Get out and take your sack of your weird dollars with you. This week's edition of the Lawrence Ross Show Yikes! has just hit the brakes. Keep your ugly fucking gold brick and ass out of my beach community. You lose! Good day, sir! I was making radio shows for fun. Everybody does it. Everybody I know does. Shut up! And baba booey to y'all. <laughs>